Hello, and welcome to a special horror-themed edition of Indie Filmopolis, a podcast dedicated to independent films and filmmaking. <laughs> Hi, I'm Philip Pugh, a filmmaker and indie film enthusiast, and once again I'm joined by actor Mike Bourne. How are you, Mike? I'm very tired, but very happy to be here, as always. Great. So, normally, Mike, as you know, with these podcasts, we've been talking about the making of our low-budget feature film, Homeward Cinema, going Mm -hmm. through the different stages, and then going on to do reviews or recommendations of some of our favourite, or most relevant, or recent indie films that fit that whatever we're talking about. But instead of focusing on Homeward Enemy this time around, we're going to talk about the making of a short horror film that I co-wrote, produced and directed called Conditioning, which, Mike, you're also in. Yes, yes, I had a a brief uh, but substantial role in that. It was very good fun. Great, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. And keeping in with the horror movie theme this this time around, we're going to share our thoughts on Ari Aster's Midsummer as well as his short films. Uh, we're going to also talk about the horror thriller The Prodigy, which has just been released on home media, the micro-budget film Savage Land, and since conditioning is a gruesome, blood-filled gore fest, we'll also be taking a retrospective look at the originator of the modern gore film, Saw, the original that premiered in Sundance in 2004 and spawned a rather iffy franchise. And also, a bit different this time around, we've got a little giveaway got a, a brand new copy of Ariaster's Hereditary, uh, so stick around, we'll tell you how to enter. Not Hereditary? Match. Who's in Hereditary again, I forget? Tony Collette. Tony Collette. Gabriel Byrne. Ooh, that uh, is The Usual Suspects. So, normally we give a shout out to our Indiegogo followers who supported Almost Enemy, but Conditioning was also partially funded and supported through Indiegogo as well, so this one in particular goes out to you. Thank you very much for your generous support and uh, sticking with us, the making of Conditioning. You've all seen it now, all the digital copies have gone off, the DVDs are soon to head out off, but if you've found the podcast by other means, thanks for joining us. Yes, welcome, welcome all. So let's jump on to the making of Conditioning. Uh, Conditioning is a short, gory horror film that's more than meets the eye, going beyond the gore and explores deep-rooted prejudice and its influences. It hit festivals last October and has done us quite proud, picking up four awards, glowing reviews and a bunch of official selections at film festivals all over the world. So, Phil, how did it come about? How did it all come about, Conditioning? As you well know, Mike, you were in a series of films called One Minutes. Yes. And I really enjoyed making those, and people involved really enjoyed making those. And at some point when we were in post-production on Almost Enemy in the early days, I wanted to do, occasionally, a new one-minute film. Yeah. And we did two or three, I think, and you were involved in a couple of them. We did Speed of the, of the Living Dead, yeah. did one called To Live For, which did really well, and one that's still... As of yet, unedited, the blind man. Oh, one, blind, do you uh, blind. See you when T. See one. you next Tuesday. Yeah. yeah see you next Tuesday. One. On Speed of the Living Dead, we met and worked, I think, for the first time with a, an actor called Joe Capella. Yeah. He's the main zombie in Speed of the Speed of the Living Dead, and I was just talking to him about wanting to do more little short films here and there. And he said that he really wanted to do a Saw-like film, yeah. which I was quite down with, but his interest was really just in the in the blood and gore kind of aspect of it. 
um, and I, I thought it'd be fun to do that with the effects and everything but I wanted it to be a bit more substantial yeah deeper. something more meaningful to it a bit more meat, a bit more meat yeah <laughs> pun intended <laughs> so yeah I mean since Saw I mean any kind of slasher film really for me I felt I don't know if you feel the same way that there's sort of like a major kind of detachment between the viewer and the main characters there's always a group of characters you don't really they're never made likeable you're not supposed to care about them you're supposed to enjoy watching them die they're usually young yeah and I just thought it'd be interesting if if the characters who were going through the the trauma or whatever yeah. like if they, if they were actually likeable characters and if they were being persecuted for who they were rather than just randomly being at the wrong place at the wrong time which yeah. is the setup for every kind Pretty of much. slasher horror film so even though in some respects it feels like we live in a far more tolerant society you can't have the light without the dark for all the increase in sort of tolerance and acceptance it seems to have bred more intolerance uh, especially of the pond yeah. it's it's become where intolerance is be becoming an acceptable norm which it should not ever become mm -hmm. now more than ever that makes conditioning even more relevant conditioning starts off with um, a, a gay couple in a park who feel safe and happy to walk through the park holding hands but there's still a, a great risk to doing that, you know, even in today's day and age. I mean, quite recently, did you hear that story about the... Um, Two ladies on the bus. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You got yes, punched in the face, beaten up by a group of youths. And so I, d I wanted to marry those two things, really. I wanted to, you know, a lot of people go and watch and in sort of enjoy w watching, like, a group of people being picked off. And I thought, well, if you put up, like, more of a, a substantial backstory to them and gave the, a reason why they're being persecuted, would you get the same level of, kind of, enjoyment? I wanted to, kind of, challenge the audience reaction in that way. So, essentially, yeah, the film is about a gay couple who are in a saw-like situation, getting tortured, and it's set up that they're being tortured for being who they are for being a gay couple and so yeah, like i said it all started as a woman idea but of course there was just too many ideas in the end that went into it and it it expanded and it's turned into about a five seven minute film uh, but even so there's only so much you can explore within five seven minutes yeah that was the genesis of the film from your point of view if you're going to pitch the film to somebody what is it the horrific dangers of intolerance in a society that accepts it and but if you were to do it short, it's intolerance as horror. So we got the, the script together. It's sort of in two parts. It's, one part is sort of like a more traditional, not drama, but a melodrama. more safe setting. Yeah, it's melodrama. And then we've got the horror aspect, which is, like I said, very gory, very bloody. Um, and so we needed some people who would be up for being in those situations. You mean the torturers? The tortured, the torturers, the torture scenarios, and also sort of being on the same wavelength as well as the sort of the point we're trying to get across. So obviously Joe was a no-brainer because he sort of instigated the idea. He was one of the couple. Then we needed someone to act alongside him, and we went with a guy called Aaron Wood. You enjoyed acting with him, didn't you? Yeah, he's, he's great. I like Aaron. Um, he was in Very relaxed character. Yeah. He's been in a couple of the shorts as well. He's got a, a tiny little role in Almost Enemy. He appears on a TV show, coincidentally with Joe. Um, and of course, casting you as a no-brainer. We needed... <laughs> he needed somebody with no brains. So it was a no-brainer. <laughs> we needed 
a big presence to be the the main torture and the the people who do in the the torture and for for a very specific reason are sort of portrayed as a family so we had mike as the quote-unquote dad then there's the mum just to mix things up a bit we cast a really good actor called mac mckenzie seen his work previously that's right yeah i was very impressed with uh, some of the short film work that i'd seen him do and i'd recommended him already to nigel davey who's a producer on almost enemy pretty much everything else that we've worked on and he used him in a in a short film he was making about Einstein and Matt played Einstein believe it or not <laughs> they dyed, he's got very kind of light coloured hair and they dyed his hair black for it wow. so it's great to get him on board playing the mum and then your son that was a change around as well as well was played by Kirsty Blakely who's a friend of Joe's she just delves straight into the role of this this childlike glee of what I talked about, but yeah, she was really, really good. I really liked it. But then you've got that whole juxtaposition again. You've got the female playing the male and the male playing the female. Mm-hmm. Just worked really, really well. And then on the other side of the coin, we've got the, as you called it, the melodrama kind of side of things, the real world uh, aspect. We had a, a son and a dad paralleling the family of torturers, and so that was Richard Bolin and Jackson John Acton, both really good in the film. Yeah. You didn't work with them, did you? I don't think I've seen them before, but I, I liked uh, I liked their style. There was that, that underlying menace from the dad, yeah, and the nice almost innocence from the son that becomes worse. Mm-hmm. Again, this started out as um, a one-minute film, so I shoot. So kind of in planning, I thought, oh, we'll, we'll do it in a day. <laughs> Very quickly, as soon as it became a five-page script, we knew that we'd need more than one day. So we dedicated one day specifically to the, the gore, the special effects, and then everything else was done on the first day. So actually, the location where we filmed on the first day, I don't know if you know this, but it was next door to where we filmed Almost Enemy. So Andy's house... You know, there was the youth club, the youth oh, centre next yes, door. Yes. So that's where we filmed the uh, living room scene. Oh, okay. Um, and then, obviously, you know, the park that's just over the the road from... Yeah, the Licky Hills area. Yeah. The Licky Hills, yeah, it wasn't... It was Cofton Park, is it? Yeah, Cofton Park is the, is the Lord of the Green area. Yeah. Uh, so that's where we filmed the park scenes. So, yeah, it was all kind of very close to where we'd filmed. Obviously, I mean, it, was quite, it was really weird going, going back and Good. not going into the... The coach house to film. To, to be fair, that place seems to draw horror in. I mean, even the name of the place suggests horror. Welcome to Cofton Hackett. It just screams like a small town in America. It's got dead people looking through shuttered windows, just staring at the strangers walking down the street about to be slaughtered. Welcome to Cofton Hackett. Population very little. That went mostly okay. There was one major hiccup that day in that the person who was renting the location to us didn't turn up for about an hour and a half, so we were all stuck outside. That was brilliant. When you're on a, a tight schedule, that's the last thing you need. So we did that day first. Then, it may have been just a week later, maybe two weeks later, we did the warehouse scenes, the, the, torture the gore. And so we went to a place in Digbeth, in Birmingham, called Roadplay Theatre, where we filmed before, we did parts of Speed of the Living Dead there. And some of Almost Enemy. Yeah, correct. I completely forgot about that. Yes, we did some of Almost Enemy there. Mike Owen doesn't. So what happened when we were <laughs> filming Almost Enemy, Mike? I got a big strap on <laughs> on my waist. My strap on my waist. Hang on a minute. Um, I was hoisted up. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't tight around other areas. 
and my groin did a sumo wrestler shrinkage into my body as the strap pulled up in the wrong area and had to be readjusted afterwards. So was that the the true horror that went on for you in that place rather than what we filmed for conditioning? Only for the briefest of seconds. (laughs) So in terms of trying to find a location, we just needed like a big expanse, a sort of a a warehouse type place and everywhere in Digbeth are old warehouses and Mm. factories. And this particular one, Rogue Play Theatre, is a dance studio. And it was just perfect. It's got these metal girders up and down across so you can hang stuff off it. So we hung uh, plastic sheeting from the girders to the floor, which was perfect. It sort of cornered everything off. It gave gave us a nice way to diffuse a lot of the lights coming from behind it, create a lot of shadows, good film through it, onto it. See, so just kind of images of things going in the background mm-hmm. So that was a really good place. We covered the floor in cardboard so you could just get blood and shit and crap everywhere. I didn't know where it was because the place is covered in cardboard. It could have been anywhere. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So it was, it was, even though it was in this warehouse, it was pretty much almost disguised in a way. And yeah, that was, it was a long day. We went over by quite a lot. There was a lot of special makeup effects to do, which Tanya Ashworth and Joanna Strange did brilliantly. Especially Joanna, uh, specialising in gore makeup as a as a makeup artist. Yeah, she was a, she was brilliant. And what was your favourite part of filming? I think my favourite part is one bit where um, blood gets squirted onto my face. Oh yeah, and almost hits my eye. But what I liked most was my reaction wasn't to blink and mm-hmm. shake my head away, but I actually just carried on. Yeah happily doing what I was doing. I even widened my eyes at that point. That was one of my favourite bits, and even though it's not in the film, the voice I gave to the character as well. Yeah, it ended up being mostly silent. It just played a lot better, Yeah, um, kind of witnessing the the horror, really, and having having the the score, which was done by Edward Harvey, who also did um, the score for Speed of the Living Dead. Yeah. So for the actors, it wasn't the easiest to shoot. It was quite cold in there, from what I remember, and people were wet. Aaron was having his head dunked in a bucket of dirty water. He had to spend most of the day in a cage yeah. on the on the on the and, floor. And before that, <clears throat> um, you shoot a scene through the translucent, yeah, translucent um, fabric. And there I am, I'm pulling in bits of stuff from out of his trousers. So mm-hmm. inside his own trousers is soaked and horrible yeah. and sticky as well from all the blood and gore that I've ripped out mm-hmm. yeah, I think him and Joe ended up being quite blood stained by the end of it so one of the things we didn't mention well, we did briefly mention that we were crowdfunding Yeah, we did two rounds of crowdfunding for Home West Enemy one of the things that I picked up one of the things I picked up from reading other people's tips about what perks you should include yes. as sort of like rewards for people contributing right. An associate producer credit sort of thing. Yeah, or, or lower tier stuff like a DVD or a yeah. thank you credit. I, one of the articles I read said, why don't you just make one perk that is for the entire sum that you want to raise and just see what happens? <laughs> so we did it with Unwist um, Enemy. So you the did? second time, yeah, yeah, the second <laughs> time around, whatever, I can't remember what the, the goal was we were trying to achieve, but I put on the highest um, price perk was matched exactly the goal that we were trying to reach okay. and 
to a perk was you know you get all the credits and DVDs whatever screening tickets whatever 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 but you'd also get the entire contents of the film every prop that we bought every costume you would own that that would be yours no no one in that instance bought it but what it was was a really good talking point because everyone that saw it was constantly asking me hey has anybody gone for that perk oh wow so when we did conditioning I did the exact same thing again yeah and guess what someone yeah someone bought it so does that mean they've had the entire contents they're they're owed it yeah Steve Hunt who was on the shoot hi I've got a 500 metres roll of tarpaulin to go to yeah this is you it's going to go into the garage it's a bit bloodstained I've got like two or three vacuum packed bags of bloody (laughs) clothes and 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 a shed load of card yeah (laughs) Uh, the card and the the, um, the sheeting got thrown away, but all the incidental props and the costumes and everything. The cage wasn't. We didn't buy that, but anything that we bought, yeah. that was thrown in. And so yeah, that if you are crowdfunding, I can't recommend you doing that perk enough. So yeah, that was Steve Hunt who purchased that, um, and so he and then he came on board as a full producer, and he was there the second day when we were doing the warehouse uh, gore scenes. He brought a lot of really cool props because he owns a auctioneer's uh, place oh, and he sells props and stuff. And do you remember that he, the um, the hooks, the massive crane hook? They're actually yes, polystyrene. I remember. Yeah. And he bought all those in and he bought loads of cool stuff. Um, really and it just helped to build. In fact, I think even your apron, that was from him. Oh. So, yeah, there's loads of really cool stuff that he brought along and it just added up. And in a way, you don't notice it, but it it helps. Like particularly those industrial hooks, crane yeah, hooks, create the atmosphere. really cool. So yeah, like I said, if you are running a crowdfunding campaign, seriously consider just putting on a perk for the entire goal and just include everything that you purchase as the perk. That second day was a really tough hard day, but everybody worked so hard. People like Mark. Remember Mark Granger? He was first AD. He was just non-stop working. The DP was great. Uh, all the actors were great. Matt Stroyd. Matt, oh, Matt on sound, yeah. Yeah, he was excellent. Like you said, Mike, in the beginning, it's done us proud. It's played a bunch of festivals, won some awards. It played at the International Shorts Film Festival in Australia. Yeah. It played at Lakeview International Film Festival in India, where it won Best Horror. Mm. played at Dundon International Film Festival in Florida. Transparent Film Festival in New York, Atlanticon Short Film Festival in, in Atlanta, where it won three awards for really? Best Horror, Best Editing, and Best Sound. Excellent. So that was a nice payoff because I wasn't meant to be editing the film. I ended up editing it as sort of, um, I guess we kind of just kind of ran out of options and funds really, so I ended up editing myself. So that was nice to get a bit of recognition for that. Uh, and then we've got a couple of upcoming screenings, which is the Summer Screen Fest in Ohio, which is in October. And this is our first UK one. It's done really well in America. They've really kind of embraced it. Uh, but yeah, the first UK festival, uh, Kino London. So that's upcoming as well in Where's November, that? I think it is. So, yeah, looking forward to all of that. And then we've also got a whole bunch of festivals that we're waiting to hear back from. So, hopefully, there might be a couple more along the way. There's some in your local area. So, anyway, if you have seen the film, I'd like to beg a little favour from you. It'd be great if you wouldn't mind popping onto IMDb and giving it a rating. 
or even uh, some feedback would be great. Yeah, a Prefer- nice review from yourselves, a review or a rating, preferably out of ten. Uh, preferably ten prefer- out of ten. Preferably ten out of ten. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. And if you haven't seen it, if you'd like to see it, if this has intrigued you, drop us a, an email, a tweet, or a private message, or whatever. And if you review it and rate it for us, you can be honest. If you thought it was shit, you can rate it one if you want. But yeah, we'll constructive, send you the link. constructive criticism is what we're looking for. Anything we can use to improve any future filmmaking things we do. We'll happily send you a link. You can check it out. And yeah, let us know what you think. Yeah, please. That'd be great. So, any other thoughts? Any final thoughts on conditioning? I think you've covered it, to be honest, pretty much. Smashing. So, moving on then from our own work. We enjoy watching films as much as we like making them. And recently we went to watch Midsummer. After premiering at this Sundance Film Festival in 2018, Hereditary went on to become one of the most talked about indie films of last year. And not only did it become A24's highest grossing film to date, it also put first-time filmmaker Ariesta on the map, making him a director to watch, with many people looking forward to seeing what he'd come up with next. Uh, thankfully he didn't leave us waiting long, as after having barely just about digested Hereditary, his follow-up film Midsummer was released just over a year after Hereditary's general release. Midsummer is a folk horror film which director Ariesta also wrote. It stars Florence Pugh, no relation, Jack Rayner and Will Poulter. It follows a couple whose relationship is hanging together by a thread who, along with a group of friends, travel to Sweden to witness a rural community's fabled Midsummer Festival. What begins as an idyllic retreat, with them observing the customs of the natives, quickly devolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre set of rituals, with the group of friends going from observers to unwilling participants. Now, we saw this a few weeks ago, and I'm still not sure whether I like it or not. Uh, There's a a lot to love about it. But there's also stuff that I was just like, I wouldn't say hated, but I was, a lot of the time I was watching, I was just like, what on earth are we watching? What, yeah. is, what is this? There were, there were plot holes right? this. In terms of camera work, there's lots of still stillness. Mm-hmm. There's no quick editing. The camera moves extremely fluidly. The camera moves. It's almost like a ballet dance. Yeah. In terms of the cinematography, it's an absolutely gorgeous looking film. Yeah. And what's really interesting about this is it happens at time of year when it's constantly daylight, which is an amazing kind of twist on the the conventions of horror where everything's normally set at night. There's not a single nighttime scene once they're in Sweden. It's it's really ballsy to set a, a horror in the in broad daylight. I find this a film of juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. You'd have moments where you'd be looking at images full of colour and life and harmony while something horrific was going on. One of the striking images is the main uh, the main actress. Her character is flooded with these beautiful flowers. She's wearing mm-hmm. this huge sort of frock sort of dress thing in, in, with flowers just everywhere. But she looks utterly miserable. Yeah. It, it, it's a juxtaposition of what you see there. The way the character's if you look at dead bodies in a in a horror film, they are eviscerated or bloody or you know they look disgusting. Mm. In this, the dead bodies are beautiful and decorated. They're still dead, yeah. appalling, but mm. they're decorated, and taken care of, and looked after. 
what's kind of weird about it is it's dressed up as like this folk horror film yeah. but structurally it's actually a bog standard slasher film yeah. it's a group of friends in an unfamiliar setting who get picked off one by one it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre it's every slasher horror film yeah. you've ever seen but, but it's it's thrown different around. yeah you've got these bunch of friends and rather than them running screaming trying to get away um, they come in in welcome you're not spared any of the horrific moments the horrific moments are shown in extremely graphic detail mm-hmm. and again it, com- it, it, it completely throws you so what do you think of the performances I thought the main the main the actress, actress oh she, she was, was great. really good really good uh, for me Will Poulter they're almost um, if they were like a Scooby Doo gang he'd yeah. like shaggy mm-hmm. he, he stuck out for me because he he was his character seemed just so out of its depth. There. Yeah, but he was also kind of the most relatable as well yeah. because he was the one questioning questioning stuff. everything. Like he's he's the the audience. It's like why is this happening? One of the things I really liked was the the portrayal of the relationship between Florence Pugh and Jack Rayner. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, a relationship. One, yeah, it's a relationship on its last legs, and I thought it was really really well written and played out it's very balanced clearly they've got problems and those problems are not one person's fault and it's portrayed that way yeah. and there's sort of two people who are desperately one of them's desperately trying to look for a way to break up the relationship the other one kind of needs to be in the relationship but doesn't necessarily want to be in the relationship and it, you just don't see relationships portrayed like that no and again that's it's a juxtaposition from what you've seen in other horror films usually Two characters who meet clash to begin mm-hmm. with and then fall in love together whereas this way they've already found it and they're pulling being pulled apart yeah even further i mean it's sort of like i said at the beginning they're sort of it's hanging together by a thread to begin yeah. with and um this experience certainly doesn't help matters no one of the bizarre things when we went to see it and i've uh, heard this from other people's reviews as well there was a lot of laughing going on and this wasn't just like uncomfortable laughing this wasn't people tittering this was people uncontrollably pissing themselves laughing at moments i don't think the director intended to be funny this is this is the problem with ari uh, Ari aster a lot of his films he's he's in danger of becoming too niche yeah he's he's got a beautiful vision and his writing is it's something that i've not seen a lot of people he comes up with scenarios, you know. I can't even think anybody would ever think. Well, this about. is a, this is the thing. He comes up with some great scenarios, and he writes characters really well. And like I said, yeah. the relationship—I mean, that's like a very honest portrayal of yeah. a of a real relationship that you just don't see in films. But at the same time, this film's way too long. Structurally, it's a mess. I think he's com- great at coming up with ideas. Like you said, he's a great visual director. Yeah. But I don't think. He's as an accomplished writer. For me, a running theme with all of his films, particularly the shorts that we'll talk about, like he doesn't... To me, he doesn't understand structure, he doesn't understand pacing, he doesn't understand the editing process in terms of what should be in there and what shouldn't be in there. Everything is very long. His short films, even though they're short films, they're long yeah. for what, what they are. They should be much shorter. How long was it? Two and a half hours? This could easily have been yeah, a 90-minute, 100-minute yeah. movie. Yeah, it could have been a lot shorter. 
it's almost like he's been caught up in the in the, the ritualistic beauty of the film and he wants to show off this and I mean like you say a lot of the rituals yeah. that the, the people do you didn't need to see all these rituals no. so but you, it's, you got the idea it's the same with hereditary um, I don't I think something gets lost in the editing process I don't know if it's the same editor or what. I think there needs to be someone much stricter in the edit suite with him say look you need to make this tighter you need to get rid of this it's a nice scene but it shouldn't be in there for me I just think either somebody needs to help him write better structured scripts from his ideas his ideas are sound they're just not structured or played out as well as they could be or someone in the editing needs to have a more of a firmer hand on pulling the film together yeah I think definitely in the editing definitely scenes did become unnecessary but like you say there was a, that particular scene where the boyfriend is having sex with one of the um, cultists mm-hmm. and whereas it was supposed to be an almost stylized scene this was one of the scenes that people laughed at hissing themselves like, not just like I said yeah, they went teetering there wasn't pain. nervous laughter they were hissing themselves laughing and this is one of the scenes the director I don't think wanted to do that but he's becoming He's drifting off into mm-hmm. an each thing, and of course, part of that could have been edited down. We didn't need to see the whole thing. Mm-hmm. We understood what he was trying to do. I think he's choosing style over substance in some places. Yeah, but he's clearly great with actors as well because oh. the performance is brilliant, both oh, yeah. both Midsummer and Hereditary. But yeah, great, great visual filmmaker. Just there's something with the the writing and the editing that just Something's doesn't quite. Just and it's, it's a shame because if he if he gets a hold of those things, he'd be unstoppable. He'd be like a name director, I definitely, think. Definitely. What was your um, what was your favourite scene or moment? My favourite scene um, wasn't really anything to do with when they were in Sweden. It was the terrifying moment that. Pugh discovers what happens with her family and the build up to that when yeah. you see the fire engines outside the house and you follow the hose in the same way that you're following the strand of it's, it's like a mystery you're discovering what happens and in that that particular bit that was really good that was well edited that was put together quite succinctly you're following a line of thought that the the, uh, the, the firemen are following as well to discover what happens and it's it's one both terrifying and two brilliantly done for me there's two moments that stick out the, the one is the final scene particularly the shot that you mentioned with Florence Pugh in the yeah. dress of flowers and everything that happens there won't spoil it but also I really liked, quote unquote liked the scene where the first ritual killing where they commit suicide the two people yeah. who sort of they're within the sort of the rule not the rules but the yeah, I guess the rules of their cult. cult you know you reach a certain age and instead of becoming old and useless the idea is that you go to a higher place better place yeah. and they they kill themselves and it's almost hinted at at the start when they say that this the age is sort of up to 18 yeah. and 36 mm-hmm. and 54 72 and one and I think it's Lawrence Pugh actually says what happens well after 72 and it's not answered yeah well it is <laughs> it is eventually scene. but it's yeah. not answered at that no. point so it's, it's a nice it's a nice intro to it it's very explicit 
though the the deaths and that scene in particular is absolutely brutal and shocking but, but and, the, and this is the other thing you know you almost know it's coming as an audience member you know it's coming because yeah. you're sitting there watching a horror film yeah but watching the characters they're not aware yet that they're in a horror film this is the first time that they're like oh shit and to see those reactions was great oh yeah yeah <clears throat> once they're like Okay, maybe this isn't quite the midsummer festival we were hoping to attend. But then there's almost the bit after that where one of the characters, one of the cultists, tries to explain in a very calming way. Again, this is the juxtaposition. She explains very calmly that this is their way, mm-hmm. this is how we do things. Please don't be angry. And they're pleading with, I mean, it's such a, a scene of, like you say, ultimate brutality, but of serenity almost as well. So, yeah, he's a he's a really good writer. So. I don't know. I wouldn't say he was a really no. good writer. He's a really good director. He's a really good writer for certain scenes and, like yeah. you say, characters, but there are moments where... And, and moments. Yeah, this is the thing. He can come up with great moments. He yeah. can write really good characters. Pulling it all together, he just can't yeah. quite make that happen for me, personally. So, as ever, we always rate films that we're reviewing out of five Kahuna Burgers. So, how many Kahuna Burgers for you with this one? For me, it, it had wonderful moments. Flew together with some beautiful scenery and direction, but in other cases, you're right, it was too long. There was lots going on that seemed repetitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would give it a three. Three going on about it. Yeah, my initial feeling is three, but I think. See, I'm still not settled. Like, it could be a four. <laughs> I, I definitely could be need. Three Kahuna burgers with fries. I'm not sure what it is. I'm going to be honest, I'm not, I don't know. It's been two weeks since we saw it, is it? Some, maybe even longer than that. Um, and I'm still not sure whether I like it or not, or what I think about it. All I know is there's a lot of stuff in there that I really like. There's a lot of stuff in there that I don't like. There's a lot of stuff that I was disappointed with that I didn't think worked. But it's not a bad film. But my feeling is also it's not a great film. But there's some greatness in it. Yeah. It might be three, it might be four. I, I'm, gonna, I'm looking forward to re-watching it. Look um, forward to hearing the, uh, yourselves um, watching it and seeing what your opinions are. Absolutely, it's got very mixed feedback. So if you've yeah. seen this, let us know your thoughts. What did you think? Now, something a bit different, since we're on a bit of an Ariasta binge. Uh, we thought we'd do a little bit of a giveaway this time around. Got a brand new copy of Ariasta's first film on Blu-ray, uh, Hereditary. Woo-hoo. It's a region B, but most people have got multi-region plays these days. So you're more than welcome to enter from anywhere you like. We'll send it anywhere in the world. Uh, If you want to enter to win it, just email, tweet, message, direct message uh, us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, SoundCloud, whatever. And all you need to do is recommend to us an indie film that you think that we should watch. One that you love, uh, that you don't think has gotten enough recognition. And it doesn't have to be an underground film. It kind of had a reasonably sized release uh, for an indie film, but maybe it just didn't resonate with the audiences as much as you think it should have done, even if you're a filmmaker yourself and you've got a film that you made that you want us to check out. And we'll pick one that uh, intrigues us the most. So no, don't just send us the, the name of the film. Give it a bit of a sort of a, a, a hard sense. sell. Yeah, uh, why, why should we check it out? We'll pick one, and not only will we send you... Hereditary on Blu-ray, but we'll also check out the film and review it in a future episode as well. Your recommendation. So, Ariasta's other work. 
his short films. So after uh, we watched Midsummer, I started checking out what he'd done. I'd already seen Hereditary, which I quite liked. So yeah, we checked out some of his short films. And what's interesting is they're not horror films, considering he's put out no. two horror features. They feel like... Not not conventional horror, anyway. There, there are no, horrific I mean, elements to it. One of them's a comedy. Where do you want to start? So I've picked one and Mike's picked two, two that are sort of a, a buy one, get one free, in a sense. Well, I can do the two that I saw. They're very, very similar, but on different scales. One's called Basically, and the other one's called Celebi. And they're both similar straight away in the titles. They're throwaway titles, or what people would say, you know, like, I, I did this, basically. Or, Celebi, you know, that's the way it is. This is life. Basically... Is a film, a short film about this girl from LA, sort of area, who gives delivers this monologue, which, which admittedly goes on for a long time. She, 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 it's fifteen she minutes. Yeah, film. it's both films are too long. Like mm. Midsummer, both, both yeah, films. There's a running theme with Ari Aster's work. And it, <laughs> like, like I said before, even though these are short films, they're still too long for yeah. what they are. And Celebi has the same. But it goes on a different scale. Whereas you've got the LA girl who's got everything. In Celavi, it's flipped where you've got a homeless man who's got nothing. In both of these, they both deliver these long monologues. And what I found was that they have these long monologues but have nothing to say. It's like they're filling the cliche of what you expect. They're both fake, they're both untrue of what these people that these characters are, actually are I mean at one point uh, the actress basically walks through a room like a model she puts the one foot over the other as she's walking, and what I found I was doing when I was watching these was I wasn't paying attention to her because it didn't seem true, I was actually paying attention to everything else happening around and it just gave a complete sense of this character's opulence and there were servants cleaning windows, there were people standing outside having cigarettes there, she had people around there, and they all had silent roles uh, but they were significant to her life although she barely acknowledged anything and the very last scene of Basically was once she'd gotten stripped back of all the bull crap that she was coming up with, because the scene before showed her on her, on her dregs, and of course the truth of it is she's a drug-fueled little cow who thinks the world revolves around her, but in the very last scene, everything is stripped back. She's got no makeup on, she's got no product in her hair, she's wearing very basic clothes, and she's sat in a very scant sort of kitchen area. And where has their entire monologue beforehand had been really quick and hard to follow in places because it just spewed out of her like truth. The very last scene, her her sound has slowed down. Her speech has slowed down and you actually tend to believe what she's talking about. The whole 14 to 30 minutes beforehand is just an extension of her opulence which could have been cut down to about five minutes exactly. and then you would have had this final scene which you actually feel for this character at the end the same is true of Silva. so sorry going back so the title of the film is basically because it's a reflection of what that type of character is she always say basically and basically but the very last scene is her 
basically as she is. She's back down to her basics of no hair, no makeup. So it's a twist on the title. Same is true of Celeve. It's a throwaway title. The French use it. Celeve, it's the way it is. It means it is life. But again, it comes down to the very last scene. This this tramp, uh, this uh, for, uh, sorry, sorry, this homeless person, this homeless guy, spill spills off all these things about the world where he was a politician and a mayor and he used to run a big executive company. You treat him as the cliche you expect a homeless person talking crap. And what, that's what they do, they spew it all out. Until it comes again back down to the last scene. It, the last scene again is very quiet and he talks about the voices in his head and the dreams that make him do things. And you believe him at that point because you've seen all of what's happened before. It's interspersed with some comic and quite horrific moments which do stand out a little bit, a hell of a lot more than the film basically. But they're still just a, a reflection of what he does in his life, and he tries to get you to believe it. And it's, just, it's just down to that last scene. But again, it's about seven or eight minutes long, of which the first bit could have been just three minutes in this final scene. But they're just two films which are meant to be watched as a pair, which show the different sides of society because we we live in the middle world we live we tend to live in the real world we don't live on the streets we don't live in this opulence and Ariaster's here trying to present what those two worlds are like and how we are distant from them until they become something we recognise and will listen to but it's an awful lot of an awful lot of film just to explain something as simple as that <coughs> yeah I didn't enjoy these films at all like you said they are overly long uh, it would have helped massively if they were shorter, but they're just so—they are so cliche and so boring, so redundant. You've seen them so many times. I just don't want to spend time with, particularly the character from Basically, and they're essentially just really long audition monologues. They're theatrical monologues. The way they're filmed, it's very theatrical. All—all all the shots are wide shots, and they're almost more often than not centre frame. They're talking directly to camera. And it feels like you're watching either street theatre or a theatre production. There's no camera movement in any any of these shots. It's all static, it's all wide, person's all centre frame, and it just feels way too theatrical on all levels. I mean, there's nothing short film about these. If you want to see the true nature of these characters at the end, you've got to have invested some sympathy or empathy with the characters to begin with. And that's not offered at any point. No. So... When you see the truism of the characters, you're not invested as much as maybe Ariasta wants you to be in what they're talking about at the end, so it's lost. Um, yeah, there's just in, there's and, nothing uh, new there. Yeah. Like the two subjects he's chosen couldn't be more kind of obvious and boring. Or oh, let's choose uh, a homeless person and someone who's very rich and opulent. There's nothing. There's nothing new here for me. Like you said, there's not. There's no reason to have sympathy with this bimbo valley girl wannabe actress and even though you have a bit more sympathy with the homeless man perhaps because of his circumstances and his revelation at the end is more thought provoking and heart wrenching to a certain extent than the girls but still at the same time just kind of shrugged and thought so what you've got you've you've invested anything in the character before the running time is just excessive Um, it's just ridiculous kahuna burgers 
I could see what he was trying to do. I just think he didn't do it very well. But I'm not going to give it the lowest rating because the framing, there was a bit to do with the framing of the scenes for me. So I'll give it a stretch at a two for both of them as a combined thing. So I'd, I'd give basically one and I'd give Celevi two. I mean, to be fair, the performances were fine. But they don't make good short films for me. I don't know that the the wide static shots helped any. It would have been much better for me, if, particularly in basically, particularly because it's that big sprawling house that it all takes place. And if she sort of guided you around the house and there was more cinematic movement to it, and she she was talking to you directly rather than you feeling like you're sitting in the audience of a theatrical production, you are so detached from them in all senses, not just their backgrounds and their stories but you are literally so far removed from them because they are so far back in the frame they're, they're all in wide shots You're so there's no, no never a close-up so for the performances one for basically two for Sailor V so I wasn't a fan of those but one of the ones that we watched that I really liked was called Munchausen yeah. explain it very quickly um, a son's leaving for college and he's got a very close relationship with his mother and uh, the first half we see the son growing up and finding friends in college and becoming top of the class and they go to his graduation, does really well, he gets married and but throughout it the mother has this sort of sadness because she misses the company that her son gave her. Mm-hmm. It's life. Mm-hmm. Mothers won't have the sons forever, you know, they'll have wives. It then reveals itself to be maybe, maybe, her predicting what the future would be. Then we get the second half of the film, which almost feels like her thinking through the motions. Yeah. It feels as dreamlike. In fact, it feels more dreamlike than the scene we just saw, yeah. where she decides to concoct this um, scheme of making him slightly unwell so she can keep him and stop him from going to college, mm-hmm. but it all goes disastrously wrong. And uh, not the way she ever predicted, and there's tragedy at the end. You're right. You do spend the whole of the second half wondering if this is another fantasy that she's going through in her head. Yeah. But uh, it's sort of, I guess, I made, it's, left up it's to hinted too that it might be real. But yes, you're right. It might not be. It's certainly a great film. It's very, very well made. Some of the shots are very clever. Must say as well, there's no, uh, it, there's no speaking in it. Yeah. Um, um, there's just loud sort of orchestral music yes, plays throughout. It's, it's a score, and it's a an effective score. It scores the highs and lows, and it's not just sort of a music bed. It's a, it's a proper oh, score that rides rides the emotions of the of the film. Like everything else, it's long and it's repetitive, but like I said, there's just a lot of really good, clever things, and that's why I was kind of disappointed with basically in Sailor V because the camera work was so basic and just uninvesting the the some of the camera shots in this like i li- was literally stopping it and re-watching it trying to figure out how they did it there's that one shot at the beginning where he's putting stuff in a box and he he tapes up the box and he picks up the box yes, and it and looks like it. it's on the bedroom floor and then he puts it straight into the car boot and i'm like wait a minute yeah clever and, moments like and when that. you think about it it's quite uh, simple how they did it but it, it looks like a special effect it's not because you could quite easily do it but it does kind of take you out of the film a little bit because you're like whoa okay yeah. how did that happen 
and there are loads of nice moments like that and there's a lot of kind of repeated imagery he haven't i know you haven't seen hereditary but there's a lot of repeated imagery from hereditary from munchausen as a piece of short filmmaking i really really yeah. liked it i thought it was really good yeah. um, and, cons- and considering the actors don't say anything the performance no. as well were very strong you get absolutely and you're invested in them a lot more it's interesting though isn't it the um it's a, like hereditary is a film about a parent's relationship with their kids uh, over three generations this is a like another warped take on a parent's relationship with their kid and I, I really do kind of wonder what Ariesta's relationship with his parents are like because again you, you get a sort of like a slight hint in um, Midsummer as well about the sort of the parental relationships and then certainly once you get to the festival that parental hierarchy relationship as well that's all in there mixed in and it's um you don't want to be a parent watching an Ariesta film so it <laughs> happens to parents in yeah. and certainly as a as a, a a son or daughter as well you might be t- yes. <laughs> like, hmm. only child were you wearing <laughs> yeah um, yeah there's a really thing Kahuna Burgers for me from one chance because of its inventiveness and because you're still not sure at the end if it's a dream sequence I'll give it um, a three for me the music was a bit too shrill gosh okay um, for me this is a five out of five if it was a bit shorter and tighter it would have been so much better but there was an awful lot in there that i really like there's a lot of what you now can kind of see as ariesta hallmarks in there it feels more in keeping with hereditary and midsummer than basically and say the v to me um so i really enjoyed it so if you did enjoy hereditary or midsummer definitely check out munchausen sort of does it and there's a lot of kind of imagery as well that fits in at the initial opening slate is an embroidered yes embroidered uh, um, stitch pattern of the of the title which uh, plays into both midsummer and hereditary as well so since conditioning was inspired by saw in yeah. part uh, we thought we'd take a retrospective look at saw which even though it went on to spawn a rather like i said iffy franchise it started life as a, a modest indie film yeah so 15 years ago, Saw, a gruesome horror thriller from two unknown Australians, director James Wan and actor-writer Lee Whannell exploded onto the scene after debuting at Sundance in 2004. The film, made for roughly $1 million and in just 18 days, would go on to make over $100 million at the box office later that year, making it one of the most profitable films of all time by way of return on investment anyway. Saw, like I said, devolved into a torture porn franchise, but Lee Whannell, and particularly James Wan, have gone on to great success in the film industry, with James Wan having directed not one, but two billion dollar grossing movies, which isn't bad considering he came from a grimy indie film. What was the billion dollar ones then? Aquaman and one of the Fast and the Furious films, which actually did 1.5, it's one and a half billion for that one. So, thoughts? The first thing for me about Saw was I actually found it really hard to watch. Mm. You know, I knew it was going to be a gore film, but yeah. you were all. But I think the jumpy camera angles, the the shakiness, the um, overriding, um, almost nausea of the film took me back to when I saw. Um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. I mean, this obviously influences. And of course, the first scene is this guy trying to get out of this cage in razor wire. Mm-hmm. And I felt every cut, everything, my stomach churned. I couldn't believe a film was doing this to me. 
from that moment, I had to know what came next, even though I also didn't know want to know what came mm-hmm. next. It was stunning that he did that. Yeah, I mean, it's been sort of, I think, miscategorised as torture porn. The subsequent sequels definitely fall under that category, but this first film, it's it's gory. It's got gory horror elements to it, but it to me it's a thriller. There's a, there's a mystery there to be solved, and it there's as much of a detective story going on, in a way, like Seven. Yeah. It's as much of a detective thriller story as it is a gory horror film, which I really like. But yeah, it's a first-time film. They did in a great cast and of course Tobin Bell who's not like a massive name but it's incredible really considering he he had such a little role in this film um, and he went on to sort of be the the face main protagonist for the rest of, of the series. rest of the franchise yeah. yeah so we talked about the the shooting schedule which was 18 days and scheduling wise you've got to hand it to them Danny Glover's role he did everything in two days all of his wow. works um, the stuff with Carrie Ells's wife and daughter that was all done in three days. The bathroom stuff was done in six days. So, in terms of um, like a scheduling accomplishment, it's certainly that's, up there. That's, so that's a way to get the most out of your cast, really, and the names in your cast as well. Everything happens in pre-production. If you can get everything done correctly in pre-production, the, the actual production should go something like that. If you've done it as well as they obviously have. When I rewatched it, it felt actually felt a lot cheaper than what I remembered, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I was surprised when I read that the budget was a million dollars. Not to be mean, but it doesn't feel like a million dollar movie. It feels like a sort of a half a million dollar film. The, some of the sets are a bit cheap and the lighting's a bit cheap. There's virtually no exterior shots whatsoever. It's all oh, interior. Well, yeah, especially I mean, the majority of the film is about bathrooms. Well, you'd think that, but there's a lot of stuff that happens in the doctor's apartment with his wife and daughter. There's the whole uh, detective side of things, the mystery side of things, which was insane that they filmed all of Danny Glover's bits in two days. They must have done one take. And, he's and he's a very on. good actor, though. He's a very good actor. The other thing that stuck out to me was Lee Winnell's performance. Like he was an unknown actor, first time in a film, and he's, he really hold, holds his own against Kerry Ells. So, favourite scene... It's got to be the twist that no one saw coming. Yeah. That bit where Turbin Bell stands up. That's my favourite moment as well. Yeah. Even though. It's not just the aspect of him standing up, Mm -hmm. but like you say, it's the reaction of the character to him Mm -hmm. getting up and the build of the music at that moment. It's something nobody would have ever seen coming. No, I look forward to it every time, even though you know the whole time. Yeah. You know, subsequent watchings that he said it's still a great moment, even though it's like sometimes once a twist has happened, it's it's not as effective, but it's still such a great moment time after time. Yeah, it's worth watching. There are very few films where you want to rewatch a mm-hmm. twist. It is an amazing kind of mishmash of ideas, and it wasn't really kind of built towards having a twist either. So that's what yeah. makes it more special. Yeah, because you feel like the Doctor might actually succeed in yeah. his mission when he gets away, but we never beyond that so we'll know if he's ever going to make it not within that the film obviously you, that film. you find out later what happens to him but uh, certainly yeah within this film and I, I wonder if they ever they probably never did think of um, whether or not they'd make sequels or not so do you know how the second film came about I imagine somebody turned around and went well that film made a lot of money can we make a sequel but in terms of the story uh, no so the script was floating around or this A script was floating around and a lot of studios were sort of dismissing it going oh this is too saw like obviously people knew of saw from sundance and it was a while before that ended up in um, 
theatres, cinemas, but the the people who owned the rights to Saw, they bought the rights to this unrelated script. Okay. And so they had it that everyone was referring to as being too Saw, and they quickly wanted to put a feature into production. So they had this script, and they had Lee Whannell rewrite elements of it to tie it into the first film. Oh, clever. Yeah, that second film, it does feel very different from everything else, and that's because it was an entirely different film. And there's a lot of films, particularly the Hellraiser films, yeah. that, that happens a lot with a lot of the sequels there. Uh, I think it's Dimension who owned that, and they would buy random spec scripts. And then they'd go, okay, we need to... We want to put out another Hellraiser film, right? What have we got that's Hellraiser-ish? Okay, we just need to write Pinhead into the script we've got, and there we go. So it's an interesting way, but of making a making a film, but it ensures that you get a film out quickly. So, Kahuna Burgers. If I base it solely on the merit of it as a film, it's got to be a film. It, it ushered in a new sort of era of how to view almost like a gory horror. Mm-hmm. It's like you say, as a standalone film separated from the franchise, um, it has surprises, twists, and turns that rival any other film out there. So for me, yeah, I think it's got to be a five. I mean, I really like it. For me, it's a four. Yeah, like I said, I was re watching, I was surprised how cheap it looked in parts, but as a f- first time film it's great but uh, yeah I can't don't think I can give it a five but certainly a very well made film and it is a shame that it did spawn a franchise because it has kind of got lost within that conglomerate of torture porn gore fest kind of things where as it is actually not as gory as you think it's not as gruesome as you think it is a, a thriller film as much as a horror film it's a shame that it's one of many on its own. It's a great film. Now, released recently on DVD and Blu-ray, download, we're going to talk about The Prodigy, which was released to cinemas earlier this year. It was directed by Nicholas McCarthy and stars Taylor Schilling, Jackson Robert Scott, Peter Mooney and Colm Fiore. On the very same night that the Thrush Creek Killer, it's a bit of a mouthful, Hungarian-born serial killer with a fetish for hands. He's finally tracked down and killed by the police. A baby is born to a new couple. As he grows up, the young boy, Miles, displays an advanced intellect, hence the title, The Prodigy. He goes into an advanced school, but soon starts to display worrying behaviour. After starting to speak Hungarian in his sleep, he goes on to batter a classmate with a wrench, murder the family dog, and off his father in an apparent car accident. His mother obviously grows increasingly worried and scared and begins to feel that there may be a more supernatural explanation to what's going on. So, Mike, what did you think? I liked it. The uh, The ending, um, the last 20 minutes or so, wasn't what I expected, mm-hmm. which was good. Because unfortunately for me, a lot of it was a bit cliché. But, saying that... It, I think it was well written in, in, in other parts and some of the acting was really good especially from the central role of the young lad yeah. he was exceptional especially that moment with the psychologist mm-hmm. he, he, he was terrifying really really good performance there absolutely I mean he was 
able to effortlessly go from being a sort of a sweet innocent kid to being a demonic manipulative little shit yeah and he kind of he shows everyone else up really yeah he's he's so he's so good and everyone else is just really forgettable in the movie and i wonder what the film would have turned out like if they hadn't have found that actor because it's such a a difficult thing to play effectively he played two roles two very different roles in the same movie and it's hard enough for a well-trained experienced adult to pull off that kind of thing yeah i can't imagine what it would have been like if they had found an actor who could have done the demonic stuff well but wasn't so innocent or was innocent but couldn't do the demonic stuff the the fact that the whole movie hinges on his performance yeah He's crazy, and the, the fact that he pulled it off, props to him. Yeah, he didn't do the demonic stuff as a caricature. No. That was hard. He is an actual character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, really good performance there. Worth watching Prodigy alone just for his performance. Yeah. One of the things I found out, the original title, which makes more sense, uh, was Descendants. The film, like I said, it's called the prodigy yeah. and that kind of falls by the wayside after it the does. first act yeah and I, like, I was wondering what why is this film called the prodigy because it has nothing to do with it beyond the first act no. i was very surprised by it and i was happily surprised by the the theme the plot and the, the story because you don't see too many films about reincarnation you see a lot of films about possession yeah all too many films about possession but reincarnation is quite underused so it's good to see that um and yeah like you said the ending I enjoyed that. I thought yeah, it was a good, the, nice the, twist. Yeah, the twist worked as well. Um, any other good moments? The performance for me and the ending were the two things that stood out. So one of the moments I really liked, I'm not a big fan of um, jump scares, Yeah. but there's a nice moment that happens when the kid's at the end of the hallway, he's talking to his mum and he runs to his mum and he momentarily runs through a shadow. You don't think anything of it, but having run through the shadow, the other side he comes out as the thrush creek killer huh. and hugs his or sort of grapples his mom by the time it happens and that was a i thought a very effective um jump scare it wasn't uh your typical cheap and lazy one there was one for me as well uh, but it was more the other way it was the the chill factor mm-hmm. and that's when the mother's lying on the bed and the child's hand just comes over her shoulder yeah and everything's done and the camera doesn't move everything's done very still it's very tense and he just asks, says, Mommy, do you love me? You know, it, will, will you still love me no matter what I do? I think yeah, he says something like yeah. that. And there's just that chilling conversation mm-hmm. where you're waiting for something to happen and nothing does. It's, it's very, very good. Kahuna Burgers? For me, um, this is a three. Yeah. Um, I think it's a satisfactory film with many points that are brilliant and worth standing out and worth seeing but it's got a lot of plot holes and cliche moments for me that go the other way so three I think is a good balance yeah I feel exactly the same way three out of five like you said what when it's good it's very very good but other times it's just quite bland and boring and forgettable and unfortunately the the good stuff isn't enough to outweigh the mediocrity of the the rest of the film so it's not quite a complete package and it, it is a shame because it's a film that isn't consistently average. It's a shame that it's not consistently up there all the time. Um, so you never know. Maybe next time around, the director who was Nicholas McCarthy. Yeah, look out for what he does next. Yeah. So as well as 
watching, reviewing, recommending more widely released films. We also like to find the odd underground film that hasn't yeah. had so much of a, a wide release. And this is one I think you found, Mike, called Savage Land, which is a 2015 horror conspiracy faux documentary. I'm not going to call it a mockumentary, even though technically that's what it is, but uh, that term brings to mind more comedic films like This Is Spinal Tap, and there's definitely nothing funny about Savage Land. This is a true crime-style doc. It documents the mysterious mass murder that occurred in an Arizona border town just a few miles north of Mexico. One night, the entire population of 57 are massacred and mutilated, leaving nothing but a trail of blood heading for the hills. Illegal immigrant Francesco Salazar is the lone survivor who is quickly arrested, tried and sentenced to death for the mass murder despite a lack of convincing forensic evidence. Against a backdrop of racial hysteria and paranoia that permeates the US-Mexico border, the pseudo-documentary slowly unravels the known events of that night with audio and visual evidence along with interviews and testimony to build up a better picture of what may or may not have happened. This is the first and only film from directing trio Phil Gindry, Simon Herbert and David Whelan. It did the festival circuit from 2015 to 2017 and is available to be on Prime, iTunes, and pretty much everywhere. Where did you see it, Mike? So, I saw it on Prime. So having talked to you briefly about this, yeah. I know that you like this film way more than yeah. I did. So I'm just going to let you well, talk I'm, about it. One of the things I liked about it the most was it was a, a completely different take on the horror on the horror genre than I've seen. Uh, you know, um, I don't know if there are that many sort of faux documentary or mockumentary type horrors out there there's one that I that sprang to mind yeah and it's not particularly it's called The Bay by uh, Barry Levinson yeah I didn't find that one to be particularly effective because it wasn't very character centric it was more yeah. focused on the events whereas this one is more focused on the characters yeah yeah there's a lot of characters that creep up the same sort of people that creep up the sheriff the uh, uh, the radio uh, host um and then there's the experts, there's the civil rights leader, and um, there's the prosecutor. Um, and they all feature in this, this documentary, or uh, faux documentary. And uh, what I liked a lot about it is, it is very much like you say, like the true crime thing. Um, uh, but it's a, it's, it's a film of two halves. Um, the first half is the, the whole setup mm -hmm. and, the, and how people came to the conclusions that they did, even though other people say, well, that can't happen because of this, this, and this. And then the second half of the film is the revelation of these photographs. It turns out that Salazar, being as weak uh, as he was against whatever he claimed was attacking, did the only thing he felt he could do. He was a photographer, so he took photos of the events he went round them. Yeah. It was a uh, was it thirty two photographs? I think it'd be thirty six exposures. Thirty six, that was it. And then they build it up to you know, I I didn't think anything he didn't actually say anything throughout his entire trial, he was silent. And he says and then they build it up to until I saw these thirty six exposures. Mm -hmm. And what's great is the second half deals with these photos in sequential order as they were taken. So you have a, a sort of lineage of what's going on. What I liked about it was it takes uh, a modern horror thing and makes it genuinely terrifying, especially when it's 
done in this way that could suggest it could impact upon the real world. And one of the very last shots of the film does a nice twist on that. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I loved all these characters. It, it, they were very uh, three-dimensional. Some tried to become two-dimensional with their views and aspects. Just the idea of a horror being done this way is something I hadn't come across before. And I was glued all the way through. I loved it. I, I really, really liked it. I personally thought it was a bit repetitive in parts. It didn't really build to a satisfactory conclusion for me. The payoff wasn't worth the investment of time. That being said, they put a lot of work into making it look like an authentic documentary. The, the photos they'd done, the home videos, uh, they'd even got a 3D recreation of the small town, which was part yeah. of the thing, and they were, you know, it was immaculately designed and plotted out. I don't know whether this was a real town or not, but it, whether it was or not, you know, having designed the, the town and designed the sort of the route that this guy took, it felt like they'd put a lot of hard work into to making it work. I just felt they played it possibly a bit safe. Like I said, it didn't go anywhere. It was very, very repetitive. Some great performances in it, some very convincing people. Some others, not so much, like the sheriff, who <laughs> was a bit phony. But you've got the guy who, um, who was dissecting the photographs... Yeah. thought he was very good, very convincing. This is a film that screens social issues more than any other horror I've seen. Others uh, mm. deal with it in subtlety, in subtle ways, such as The Night of Living Dead, you know. Mm. But this, this tells people straight away what this is about. Kahuna Burgers? For me, this is my first five. It has got flaws to it, but like you say, the planning, the organising, a lot of the editing to try and get it to where it is um, and to keep me glad as long as it was yeah uh, so five can hear the burger for me um, I'm going to give it three they've definitely put like I said a lot of work into it it's not your typical lazy fan footage movie put a lot of work into making it look authentic but for me the payoff just wasn't good enough in the end a lot of hard work but still three out of five okay so that was Savage Land if you able to check it out where did you say Prime so it's on Prime yeah, and it's iTunes on Prime. you'll find it on YouTube as well so that's the end of our horror themed podcast thanks for joining us if you want to check out more episodes you can find the podcast on iTunes SoundCloud Spotify and YouTube just search for Indie Filmopolis with a PH for film rather than an F you can follow us on social media on Twitter Facebook and Instagram just search for Indie Filmopolis on Facebook and Instagram Unfortunately, because it's such a long title, we couldn't have Indie Filmopolis on Twitter, so it's just Filmopolis, B-H-I-L-M-O-P-O-L-I-S. If you wanted to follow Conditioning that we talked about before, we've got our Conditioning Twitter page, which is Conditioning UK. We haven't talked too much about Almost Enemy this time around, but we're on Twitter and Facebook. Just search for Almost Enemy. We've also got a website, almostenemymovie.com. And again, with Conditioning, if you want to check it out, it's not on YouTube or Vimeo yet, but I'm quite happy to share it with you if, you, if it sparked your interest and you want to check it out. Uh, we do ask that if you would be so kind as to post a review or a rating on IMDb, that would be really helpful. So yeah, just hit us up and we'll send you the link. If you want to follow me, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Filmmaker, P-H-I-L-M-M-A-K-E-R. Sometimes there's a space, sometimes there's a underscore... Sometimes there's not, you'll find me, Philip U, 1L and Philip P-U-G-H. Just a quick reminder on the hereditary giveaway, if you want to enter that, just direct messages, messages, tweet us, whatever, on all the 
any of the socials that we just mentioned. If you've got an indie film recommendation for something that's a bit unknown or didn't get the recognition you thought it deserved that you think we should check out then let us know and again give it a bit you know you don't have to write like paragraphs just a little sell why we should watch it this film's awesome watch now (laughs) why you think it was underrated um, and why we should check it out and the one that piques our interest the most we will not only send you a copy of hereditary but we'll also review the film that you're recommending in an upcoming episode Okay, Mike, I think that's everything. Yes, yes, I've got the plane tickets. We're off to Sweden now. Yes, I, I like the flower crown you've got on. Very cool. Oh, fantastic. All I have to do now is persuade the pilot to put the wicker man in the cargo hold and we're off. <laughs>